Jodcast, for those for whom Valentine's Day is just Julian Day 2455607. With Libby Jones, Evan Keane, Ian MacDonald, Kat McGuire, Mark Berber and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, February 2011, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Mark and I've got three people presenting with me today. Two of them are presenting for the first time. Kat and Christina. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Can you tell us in a couple of words what you're doing your PhDs on? Hi, I'm Christina, and I'm um, doing my PhD on uh, giant stars. Hi, I'm Catherine, and I am studying high-mass star formation. And the other presenter is Evan, who... Hello. I think is uh, leaving soon. Is this your last Jodcast? It's been a short, sweet career. There have been rumours that I'll be departing, but I can confirm they're not true. You're not leaving? I'm I'm leaving Jodrell Bank, but I'm not leaving the Jodcast. I can be a roving reporter in the Rhineland. Evan is going to Bonn to begin a postdoc, but uh, he's going to continue doing the Jodcast whenever he can. Indeed. In this month's Extra Show, we have a new pair of work experience students, and they'll be grilling our very own Adam Averson about the ALMA telescope... And Dr. Ian MacDonald is answering your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, I was very excited indeed at the beginning of February to get the chance to interview the Astronomer Royal, a man with more honorary doctorates than you can shake a university mace at, Professor Martin Rees. I'm very fortunate today to be able to interview Professor Martin Rees, who's uh, come to the University of Manchester for a celebration of a, a Nobel Prize that's been given to researchers here. We might have a bit of time to talk about that later, but... I thought we would perhaps talk to you about what sort of things interest you in your own research at the moment. Well, I'm really interested in two areas of research. Uh, one is objects called gamma-ray bursts, which are the most extreme explosions we know in the universe, where uh, about a billion times as much energy as the sun puts out uh, is put out in a tiny fraction of the sun's lifetime, just a few seconds sometimes. And uh, these objects are very important because they allow us to study physics under very extreme conditions. And there seem to be two types of gamma-ray bursts. One is probably due to two neutron stars in a binary, rather like the famous binary pulsar that studies Jodrell Bank, which eventually will get so close under gravitational radiation effects that they will merge. And in that merger, a huge amount of energy is suddenly released in the form of very hard radiation and gamma rays. There's another kind of gamma-ray burst that's thought to be a kind of supernova when a very big star enters life and its core implodes. Now, normally in a supernova, the energy produced in the implosion doesn't get straight out. It's as if it were muffled, and it comes out after a few days, degraded to visible light in the famous supernova light curve. But if the star that becomes a supernova is a spinning star, then the energy released in the implosion finds an easy way out, as it were, by forcing a jet opening along the axis. And so the energy, in the form of hard radiation, is emitted along the axis in a sort of narrow cone. And if you are in the line of sight of that narrow cone, then you are zapped with very intense gamma rays. And the gamma rays are so intense that they can detect it even at um, very high redshifts. And indeed, the optical emission from a gamma-ray burst, although it's a tiny fraction of the gamma-ray emission, is so intense 
that uh, it's almost a naked eye object, even at a redshift of two, when the uh, brightest other objects like quasars are about ten magnitudes fainter. So a redshift of two is something like... I'm going, guessing a bit here, but is it about 2 billion light years distant or something um, like that? It's really more than that. It's about 10 billion light years. 10 billion, right. And uh, look, looking back probably um, about two-thirds or three-quarters of the time to the Big Bang. So these objects are not only fascinating in their own right because they're extreme physics, but also they are very good probes of the high redshift universe and indeed the most distant really firmly established object in the universe is a gamma-ray burst with a redshift of 8.2. And that's really looking back a long way. And so what this tells us is that galaxies had already formed and they'd produced massive stars of the kind that end their lives as gamma-ray bursts right back then. And this links to my other area of research interest, which is the formation of the first galaxies. We know, of course, that the universe started off in a hot big bang, and after about half a million years, the radiation cooled down um, and entered the infrared. And the universe became literally dark after about half a million years when the primordial radiation shifted to the infrared. And it remained dark until the first stars formed and lit it up again. And we'd like to know when that happened and what sort of uh, galaxies these stars were in. We think that the uh, first galaxies to form were really much smaller than present day ones and they formed when the universe was a few hundred million years old and we'd like to find some probes of them and the gamma ray bursts are interesting not only because they're fascinating in their own right but because they are probes of this early time and this leads to another of my interest which is another way of probing the very high redshift universe and this is something which is very much studied here at John Rural Bank uh, and this is um, studying intergalactic gas by the 21 centimetre line. This is a famous spectral line emitted by neutral hydrogen which is one of the main probes for where neutral hydrogen gas is found in our galaxy. Now it's possible with a sufficiently powerful telescope and uh, in the long run a telescope called a square kilometre array is going to be able to do this. It's a radio telescope. A radio telescope and this will be able to detect the 21 centimetre line uh, from very very distant gas and what we'd like to know is when the intergalactic gas, which would of course have cooled down as the universe expanded, gets heated up again by the first uh, energy input from the first stars and quasars. We think this happened when the universe was about a billion years old, and we don't quite know when it happened. But the study of this 21 centimetre line with the square kilometre array will be able to tell us when the ionization happened when the first uh, stars and first quasars formed and provided enough heat to uh, reionize the gas and so you will expect to see at very very high redshift lots of neutral gas and then at some transition redshift you will find that the amount of neutral gas diminishes which is all then heated up and become ionized but we don't quite know, I suppose, until it's, it's observed exactly how, how it's going to be, or, or is it something well, that's we don't, already Well, we don't know. Uh, we have another indication, because when we look in visible light at quasars, uh, we see absorption effects due to intergalactic gas along the line of sight. And the amount of absorption tells us um, how much neutral hydrogen there is. And at 
recent epochs, it's low redshifts, the neutral hydrogen fraction is very small compared to the ionized fraction, it's very highly ionized. But uh, it's interesting that when we get out to the very most distant quasars, which have redshifts about six, which means that the uh, wavelengths are stretched by a factor of seven between emission and reception, then the proportion of neutral hydrogen seems to go up. And so it looks as though uh, there is an important era in cosmic history, uh, which is called the epoch of reheating or reionization, which is the epoch when there was enough energy input from the first stars and galaxies to heat up all the gas in the universe that hadn't yet made it into stars and make it uh, ionized, which means heating it to a temperature of at least 10,000 degrees. It almost sounds like a, a recipe. This particular step, these particular ingredients are sort of being, being put into the mix and creating the next generation of stars well that, that's right what happens is that the uh, uh, the gas uh, goes into stars and then of course uh, some of those stars die as supernovae some even more spectacularly as gamma ray bursts and the ones that die as supernovae of course uh, um, expel the processed material uh, whereby in their lifetime they've synthesized many of the elements of the periodic table and it is those um heavy elements which condense into new stars and of course that's how the heavy elements in the solar system and in us were formed and it's interesting when we look at the most distant galaxies we can see uh, spectroscopic analysis allows us to estimate what proportion of their material is in the form of uh, the so-called heavy elements that's things other than hydrogen and helium and it's a lower proportion there than in a present-day galaxy, and that's what you'd expect because the process of uh, synthesizing the uh, periodic table has only just got started. There hasn't been enough time to build up the uh, proportion of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, etc., which we see now. And so even if you could look with a huge telescope with these very high redshift galaxies, none of their stars would have planets because uh, to make planets, you obviously need to have uh, things to make rocks, um, carbon, oxygen, phosphorus, etc. Um, and uh, there be no planets around these stars in these very distant galaxies. Mm. So gamma ray bursts are obviously very transient events. They come and go quite quickly. Um, how can you catch these things as they happen, or rather as we see them happen? Mm-hmm. Well, there have been several um, spacecraft which have been launched in order to detect gamma ray bursts. Uh, they look at the whole sky and they can pin down the position of these gamma ray bursts and the SWIFT satellite, which was launched about six years ago by NASA, um, is able to pin down the positions accurately enough and quickly enough that follow-up observations can be made with other telescopes. And uh, uh, although the gamma ray telescope doesn't have very good resolution, then if you can look with an optical telescope, you can pin down to uh, one second of arc where it is and identify it and see what sort of galaxy it's in and perhaps get an estimate of its distance. So uh, there are all sky surveys which pin down uh, gamma ray bursts and they are popping off about one per day. Um, And uh, uh, when the position is pinned down well enough by detecting the gamma rays, then you can deploy even quite small optical telescopes and follow up the uh, uh, light curve and the so-called afterglow whereby it gradually fades away and this allows you also to pin down its position and see what sort of galaxy it's in. Well, um, having had the Nobel Prize ceremony we've had the chance to just pick up the interview for a moment or two. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I thought I'd ask you about next was um, a 
some of the books that you've written for the, a, a popular audience. There seem to be two themes to those. One is the uh, physical laws that underpin the universe, and the other one is the future of humanity. Are those two things that you think um, sort of naturally go together? Yes, yes, okay, yes. Um, yes. Well, I'm a university teacher, and the subject I teach are physics and astronomy, and uh, as well as teaching undergraduates and graduate students, I give quite a lot of general talks to the public, because I think we're lucky in our subject that there's wide public interest. And uh, through this, I accumulated quite a lot of uh, popular articles and lecture notes, and I felt it was worth making the effort of getting them in book form. And I produced five books um, on astronomy. I've never started with a blank sheet of paper. I'm not a natural writer, but I did these books by uh, meshing together various articles and things I'd written. And so that's how my astronomy books got written. But also, as part of my work, I've always had an interest outside science in uh, what you might call global problems, arms control, and uh, what's going to happen in the coming decades, etc., And that's another subject which I often give talks about. I think it's important to make students, whatever subject they're studying, aware of these broader issues because they're going to grow up in a world that's going to change over the rest of their lives. And so I often give talks and participate in discussions and write articles on these general themes. And as an outcome of that activity, I produced a book which was uh, called Our Final Century. That's quite a dramatic title. Well, I called our final century question mark, (laughs) and the publishers took the question mark away. (laughs) Uh, But what I was really uh, addressing were problems that are going to confront us in this century, because although the Earth's been around for 45 million centuries, this one is special, because it's the first when one species, namely ours, has the future of the planet in its hands. And so it is really the case that what humans do collectively to the planet in the next hundred years is going to affect the entire future of the um, planet. And the other thing astronomy teaches us, of course, is that the time lying ahead is at least as long as the time that's elapsed up to now. The sun is less than halfway through its life. And so this special century is going to determine the fate of the planet for another uh, 40 or 50 million centuries. Do you think we could last that long as a species, I suppose that's the Well, I think the, uh, the question is how we get through this present century and are some people by, by then um, uh, living away from the Earth? Are we starting to uh, modify ourselves by genetic technology? Um, I think we've got to bear in mind that uh, um, uh, four or five billion years is longer than it's taken us to evolve from the simplest life. So if we ask what sort of life will be around mm. when the Earth ends, they won't be human. No. because uh, there will be far more uh, time in future and of course that statement is even more true because evolution in future will happen not on the million year time scale of Darwinian selection for species to evolve and become extinct but on a much shorter time scale perhaps on which we can technologically change human beings by genetic modification right. or perhaps uh, um, on the scale of time when uh, robots and uh, silicon-based organisms will take over. So rather than arresting our development as a species, you think that, that it's actually gonna, we're going to accelerate it it's accelerating ourselves? It's the time ahead is as mm. long as the time in the past, but things are going to change faster 
because of technology than they ever did in the past through natural selection. Mm. Uh, so I think it's very important to realise that we are certainly not the carbonation, um, but what we do this century is important because for the first time there are enough of us and we're collectively as demanding of energy and resources that we are having an effect on the planet. And the other concern I have is that uh, um, technology empowers individuals and I'm also worried about us becoming harder to govern because small dissident groups empowered by modern technology are going to have more chance to be disrupted than in the past. And so I think that's going to make it very hard indeed uh, to maintain uh, freedom and uh, cooperation. So um, it's not just about sort of very large political blocs but all the different factions that exist well, th- in the world. Th- th- that's right, because small groups can be uh, uh, more influential and indeed more disruptive if they wish to be because we are in an interconnected world uh, where we depend on uh, lots of networks that could be disrupted and where, of course, uh, a few people can have great influence. And how do you think we can deal with, with those challenges? Well, I think we've got to accept that uh, um, politics is in many ways harder than science yes. um, and uh, we've got to hope that um, politicians will um, deal wisely with problems that are more difficult in many ways than those which Peter has confronted. And that's why, incidentally, I hope that uh, some of our best students will in fact choose to go into politics because um, that's where we need to have very good people and I'm rather depressed that the prestige of politicians has fallen so low mm. because the last thing we want to do is to discourage idealistic and able people from going into it. Yeah, and and since you wrote our final century in, in those few years, have your views changed at all with the global developments? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I wrote that book about seven or eight years ago, and I think um, the net balance between optimism and pessimism hasn't changed. I would say that I am a technical optimist, and I believe that. Uh, Uh, even present technology and certainly technology we'll have in the next 20 years should allow everyone by 2050 uh, to have a high quality of life Mm. using clean energy and uh, uh, advanced agriculture etc. So technically I think uh, we should be optimistic but of course uh, the question is whether that will happen Mm. or whether these hopes will be um, jeopardised by political conflicts because even now, of course, we could do far more than we are actually doing to uh, improve the lot of the so-called bottom billion, the people living on less than uh, mm. um, a pound a day. Um, and uh, we could easily do that, and we're not. And so that makes me pessimistic about whether politics will actually lead to the kind of world by 2050, which technology would certainly allow. Yeah. <laughs> OK, well, yeah. as we, uh, as I think we're about to go off to dinner, perhaps should wrap up there. And thanks uh, once again for being interviewed. Yes, well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, I hope to come to Jodrell again, because uh, when I go to Jodrell, I'm always hugely impressed by the place and uh, by the uh, Lovell telescope, because it's wonderful to think that uh, that's been there for um, over 50 years. Um, and it's now doing wonderful science of a kind that couldn't have been envisioned at all. Uh, when it was built. Uh, um, At that time, neutron stars weren't known to exist. Einstein's theory was tested to a precision of uh, 10-20% at best, whereas now Jodrell is being used, among other things, to test Einstein's theory to a precision of one part in 100,000 by using the binary pulsar. And that's a wonderful development, and uh, it just indicates the 
marvellous vision which Bernard Lovell showed in designing such a huge instrument. He never foresaw, I'm sure, they would still be doing frontier topics. So far into the future. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very okay. much. Thanks for that, Mark. How did you manage to get an interview with the Astronomer Royal? Well, it was a little bit of a stroke of luck because he was coming to Manchester for a celebration of the Nobel Prize being awarded to two physicists at Manchester University. And so we managed to catch him before and after the ceremony and interview him. That's quite a coup. Presumably, the interview took place in some kind of lavish surroundings? There weren't many lavish surroundings around the lecture theatre, and we literally had to catch him for the five or ten minutes when we could. Um, So we wanted to sit down to do the interview. We were in a corridor, and we actually ended up sitting on a radiator. Hmm. Sounds comfortable. Well, it was warm. (laughs) (laughs) What a good sport. Next up, we have an interview conducted by our two uh, new work experience students, Lizzie and Ruth. They talk to Adam Averson, who is about to become Dr. Adam Averson. Hi, I'm Lizzie Campbell. And I'm Ruth Wood. And uh, today we're talking to Adam Averson, who works at ALMA. Um, can you tell us a bit about what ALMA is? Okay, so ALMA is the Atacama Large Millimetre Submillimetre Array, and it's been built in Chile, and it will be eventually a group of around 60 12-metre dishes. You said Alma's being built in Chile, in the Atacama Desert. Um, That's the driest place on Earth, and it's also near to a lot of volcanoes, including one of the most active in Chile. It seems like kind of a strange place to choose to work. Um, So can you explain why the area is so suitable for the astronomy that Alma wants to do? The the reason it's being built in the Atacama Desert is because of the dryness, and it's being built at 5,000 metres altitude, so it's quite high up as well. And that's because... um, the electromagnetic waves that we're trying to detect are at millimetre wavelengths, which are highly absorbed by water in the atmosphere. So if you go high up, then there's less atmosphere above you, and if you go to a really dry place, there's less water in the atmosphere, so less absorption happens. So that makes it an ideal place to put this uh, array of telescopes. As for the volcanoes, well, uh, I assume that they thought about this when they started building them, and were, the telescope will be at a suitably large distance from um, the volcano that no immediate danger is, is happening. Um and in the case that a volcano does erupt, I assume that they just stop observations. And as well, it being at 5,000 metres, no one's actually going to be up there. It all gets controlled from a, a station at 2,900 metres because you get up to 5,000 metres and you start having medical problems. So, yeah, it's not a great place to, to go and work. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So for the listeners, uh, can you explain how interferometry can be used to create images? I can try. <laughs> uh, first, I, I, I recommend getting the uh, Jogcast uh, October 2009, in which uh, ESO astronomer Robert Lang does uh, an interview, which he explains all about interferometry, and he's probably going to do a much better job than I'm about to do. But very basically, an interferometer works by combining the signals from two or more telescopes. For the example of a, a two-telescope interferometer, if you imagine the, the two waves, uh, electromagnetic waves, coming from an, an object in space towards the two telescopes, one telescope will receive the signal before the other, unless the object is exactly overhead, and that's just due to the, the speed of light and the sort of the geometric configuration of the array. Um, but if you know this time delay of the, of the two waves arriving and you can compensate for it and combine the signals together, then you get... You effectively get the kind of information that you would get from two separate parts of a single massive dish. Now, it's not that's not quite enough information to make an image, to get an accurate image. You can start adding dishes to increase the amount of information, so you're sort of getting more 
parts of this massive telescope. But the problem there comes if you're going to build a lot of smaller telescopes and then combine them all together, it's going to get very expensive and very, very technically demanding. Uh, almost the, the same reason that we don't build these massive, you know, over 100 metre dishes. So the next thing you can do, so if you've got more than two dishes, you know, you've got quite a few going, you can use the Earth's rotation because as the Earth rotates, the position of two dishes will change over time and you'll start filling in more you'll get more bits of information about the the objects you're looking at as the two antennas position relative to that object change over time so eventually you'll end up with a suitable amount of information with which you can then create images which is you, you use some clever bits of software that do quite a lot of very complicated maths and you end up with a, a nice pretty picture coming out at the end uh, just one last thing about an interferometer. The resolution you get is a function of the, se- the maximum separation of two dishes. So you can have them at kilometres, and we'll eventually have up to 14 kilometres. A single-dish radio telescope has a resolution based on the diameter of its dish. So in practicality, the biggest you can really build is around 100 metres before it gets very, very expensive and very, very engineering-heavy so that it doesn't sort of collapse under its own weight. So um, Alma's made up of an array of small antennas, so... And they can be moved about by transporter vehicles. Um, what kind of benefits does this have? Well, as I just mentioned, the uh, the separation of two dishes sets the resolution of the observation of the observations made by those two dishes when they're combined into a, a an interferometer. So by moving them around, you can set the scales of the resolution present in your in the whole array. So the kind of scales you'll see in your final image. Uh, in other words. If you have an array of uh, telescopes, the information you get about the largest scale structure is defined by the distance, be- the smallest distance between two dishes, and the highest resolution you get is set by the furthest distance between another set of two dishes. For a number of reasons, uh, observations an astronomer might want to, to make might not require the maximum resolution, so it might not require a 14-kilometer uh, separation of dishes, but something a bit smaller so having the ability to move the antennas on these transporters means you can sort of reconfigure and get all kinds of different arrays that will allow you to look at all kinds of different scale sizes in the final image of the objects you're interested in looking at and and why will the higher resolutions be useful and will it be used to look out at further out objects or will they be able to look at close objects in greater detail well the higher resolution will be most useful for looking at closer objects in greater detail than they've ever been seen before. So objects like massive stars as they form, uh, we may be able to see disks around them, which is sort of a holy grail of uh, observations at the moment. Alma will also look at um, very distant galaxies uh, because the emission from these galaxies is uh, is redshifted due to the expansion of the universe. So as an object travelling away from you because of the expansion of the universe, the wavelength of the light gets stretched so the original emission at shorter wavelength ends up in the observing bands, the things that Alma can see. So looking at this redshifted light, you're effectively looking back into the past, and uh, this means we can start looking at things that are much older and start looking at the early times of the universe. What sort of questions about the universe will Alma be trying to answer? So Alma's going to study a wide variety of objects, um, looking from the first stars and galaxies forming in the universe, as I was just saying about this, we can pick up emission because of the redshift of the light from these really early objects. 
So we, we're looking billions of years back and it's, it's tracing the very early times of the universe. And within the range of wavelengths that ALMA observes that, there are a lot of uh, emission lines caused by transitions of electrons and the sort of the motions of molecules in interstellar space. So we're effectively getting a kind of a, a, a chemistry lab in space so we can check out what happens to um, molecules and chemicals in really extreme conditions of space. So low pressures, cold temperatures, high, high temperatures, all kinds of things. So there's that kind of area of uh, exploration that ALMA would be allowing us to do. And then again, the high resolution will allow us to, to look really closely at objects in our own galaxy and see what's going on in very fine detail. So one of ALMA's aims is to find out more about the formation of stars. What kind of signs will you look for and what do you hope to find out about it? Okay, so I personally think that uh, these types of observations so about star formation that will be made by ALMA will be one of the most interesting uh, my PhD uh, was based around the formation of massive stars, so I am biased into thinking that, but there you go. At the moment, the formation of massive stars isn't really well understood. They they tend to form further away from us than lower mass stars, and they form in, in giant molecular clouds like all stars do, but these are full of dust, so it obscures our view of them in the optical, and so we have to move to uh, radio and millimetre wavelengths. The The reason they're not really well understood is that from a theoretical point of view, when a star reaches a certain mass, they should start hydrogen burning, which leads them to emitting radiation, and this radiation creates an outward pressure which stops matter falling onto the star, effectively limiting the mass. So this, this cut-off can happen up to seven or eight times the mass of the sun, but stars, um, like last year, one was found at 150 times the mass of the sun. So how did they form, which is sort of the interesting topic and what I'm interested in. Uh, so one of the ways around this problem is the accretion of matter from a disk. If radiation can escape through the, the polar regions, so the northern and southern hemispheres, and everywhere except the equator where the disk will be. And this is one of the benefits of ALMA's super high resolution, it's that we'll be able to start seeing these disks properly. And uh, this is something that hasn't been done before, so that's the bit that I find really exciting. And what makes ALMA different from other telescopes? So ALMA is different from, from other telescopes is in that it, it covers a, a huge range of frequencies, so there's, there's much more different ranges of wavelengths and things you can look at, so we're tracing all kinds of different physical processes that different. you'd have to go to a lot of different telescopes to, to do. Now, you can't observe all the, the, the frequencies, the, all the wavelengths at once, but you can apply for time and, and build up an image all using the same uh, instrument, which is, which is always good because you sort of know the workings of one problem and it makes it more comparable from one set of data to the next. And the, the, the number of antennas is much, much greater than the current millimetre interferometers that exist. So that'll allow us to get high sensitivity and good uh, images. And uh, again, the, the incredible sort of baselines that we're going to be going up to 14 kilometres is going to give us some really high resolution so we can do all these interesting things. And the, sort of the, the reconfigurable nature and more flexibility of the kind of observations you can take. So what's so interesting about the cool universe? Well, if we define the cool universe as regions of the universe where most of the matter is in the form of either molecular gas, a liquid or a solid, then first of all, we live in a bit of the cool universe. Also, these are the regions of the universe where all the astrochemistry is taking place, building up both simple and complex molecules. Uh, you get stars forming in these regions, uh, letting us study the, the building blocks of galaxies. And around some of these stars, you get planets forming which is rapidly becoming a, a really important part of astronomy with the number of exoplanets detected. Um, it's, going to get, it's going to be an absolutely huge field 
in the next few years. Um, then, if you think about it, if you had complex molecules and planets together, you could maybe, maybe end up with life, which is which definitely makes the cool universe a very interesting thing to study. And finally, as I uh, mentioned earlier, due to the effects of redshift, we get to study what's happening in other galaxies in processes that have higher energies than what we term cool universe in, in the sort of local universe. Uh, we get those completely as a bonus. So that's what's interesting about the cool universe. Thanks for that, Lucy and Ruth. Um, they spent a week here working on various interesting things with various different people. And at the end, they did a really nice presentation to everybody here. And believe there was something about a pulsar they might have found one yay yay <laughs> they were <laughs> that sounds insincere <laughs> we're not yay! sure we're not sure if it's a pulsar yet but they were uh, looking through some candidates for pulsars which is um, what uh, a lot of students really do and they struck lucky because they found what looks like a very promising candidate so there's definitely going to be a follow-up observation of that one yeah it looks good pretty exciting mark is there any news that, shall we say, wouldn't fit in anywhere else in the show that we could talk about right now? You mean like odds and ends? Yeah, something like that. Well, Jen isn't here, but um, I guess we should do them anyway. So the Kepler mission has found some more planets outside of our own solar system. It's a space mission to find these exoplanets going around other stars, and they announced uh, a new crop recently. Among those, there was a system with a single star containing six planets, and all of those planets were transiting the star, which means that they were passing in front of the star, as seen from our point of view. And that's how they were detected, because they caused the amount of light that we see from the star to dip a little bit. So there are these six planets in their own little solar system, with their own sort of ecliptic plane, all going around this one star. That's amazing. That sounds like our solar system. Can we go there? I'm going to say it's a bit too far to go there at the moment. But yes, it is a whole solar system. Kepler looks at a fairly small patch of sky, but it can see about 150,000 stars, and it's now found 15 confirmed exoplanets, which means the total number that we know about is 528. And considering about 15 or 16 years ago there weren't any known exoplanets, that's pretty good going. It also has over a 1,000 candidates, which might be planets, that need to be reobserved to see if they really are. 68 of those are roughly the size of the Earth, and out of those, five of them are in what we call the habitable zone, which is the area where they could have liquid water on the surface. So those are the most exciting because they could possibly harbour life. So it would be really amazing if one of those did turn out to be a real planet. Is the habitable zone also called the Goldilocks zone? I think so. Where conditions are just right for life. Not too hot, not too cold. And if you want to try your hand at identifying your own candidates of things that might be planets from Kepler, you Mm. can... (laughs) You can do so using the Planet Hunter project, which is part of Galaxy Zoo. You can actually go on their website and you can start having a look and trying to identify planetary candidates right now. If I were to find a planet, Mark, could I name it? I don't think that's part of the deal. I don't think there's ever going to be a planet Evan Keen. Also, I would just like to bring to everyone's attention uh, the fact that at the time of recording, the Stardust spacecraft um, is due to fly by the Temple 1 comet on Valentine's Day and hopefully should send us back some nice images of the comet. Very romantic for Valentine's Day. The wonderfully named Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory, which is more easily referred to as STEREO, has had a great result in the last week. Uh, STEREO consists of two spacecraft which are now on opposite sides of the sun. And as of February 6th, they provided us with, for the first time ever, 
a 360-degree view of the sun all at the same time. We've never had that before. So have we not previously been able to see all sides of the sun? Well, the sun is not like the moon, where we see the near side and the far side, and it's always the same side pointing to us. The sun rotates differentially, which means the equator rotates faster than the poles. So at some stage, all parts of the sun drift in front of our line of sight. But we've never been able to get a simultaneous image. of No, not all at the same time. And that's what stereo is enabling us to do now, which is great. And if you want to see those images and some fancy NASA movies, there's some links in the show notes. Staying on the solar system theme, um, some scientists at the University of Arizona have found that some of the dunes on Mars are not static as they thought they were originally. Um, They actually change over the course of a Martian year. They were looking at an area around the North Pole, and this area gets seasonal carbon dioxide ice on it, which then turns into gas in the spring, Martian spring. And this causes avalanches and general erosion on it. There's also winds which can remove these scars of avalanches um, in as little as a Martian year, which was quite exciting to find as well. And they did all of this using the NASA high-rise imager, um, which is on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is actually having its fifth anniversary of arriving at uh, Mars. Happy birthday. So there's a whole lot of weather just going on on Mars that we wasn't really expected before. Yeah, they really weren't expecting to find winds that high enough to do that, and they're wondering whether it's just happening at the poles or whether it's elsewhere as well. So the ice on Mars is not like Earth ice? No, it's carbon dioxide ice or dry ice. In this area, which is a massive, massive area around the North Pole, it's about 33 times the size of Wales, if you want it, in Wales units. So the face on Mars one day might just blow away. That's quite sad. Or it may just be blown away so that it's winking at us in some way. We've also been sent a very interesting newspaper article by Jason Hill about SARC, which has been designated by the International Dark Sky Association as the world's first dark sky island because of its extremely low level of light pollution. And this makes for an excellent quality night sky. That's one of the Channel Islands in the English Channel. It is, yes. And it doesn't have very many bright buildings and and street lamps, which is why it's so good for looking at stars. So go on holiday there if you want to do some stargazing. Yes. Astronomer's haven. Enough with the Sarky comments. Now it's time for Ask an Astronomer. And this episode we have Libby, and she's grilling Dr Ian MacDonald with your questions. Our first question comes from Philip Murphy, and he asks, If it takes eight minutes for light to reach the Earth from the sun at one AU distance, and Saturn is approximately nine AU away, does that mean that Saturn would go out 140 minutes later? So the time it takes from the Sun to Saturn and then Saturn back to the Earth. Also, when will we stop seeing Venus? Before, at the same time, or after the Sun goes out? Well, the answer here is that it's the time it takes for light to get from the Sun to the planet that's reflecting off and back to the Earth again. It's often said if the Sun were to suddenly stop shining, we wouldn't know about it for eight minutes. And the reason that is, is because it takes light eight minutes to travel from the Sun to the Earth. It's about 93 million miles, 150 million kilometres. It's what we call an astronomical unit. It's our basis for measuring distances in the solar system. Now, for an object like Venus, if the Venus wasn't exactly in front of the Sun, then we'd see the light from Venus go out at the same time, because the light travels from the Sun, bounces off Venus, and hits the Earth. 
the actual distance that light travels is about the same as it takes from light to get from the Sun to the Earth directly. But if Venus is in a different point in its orbit, the light has to go from the Sun out to Venus and then out to the Earth, which is a longer distance, so it would actually go out slightly later. Saturn orbits at about 10 times the distance to the Earth from the Sun, or 10 AU, so it takes light about 10 times as long to reach Saturn. So that's about 80 minutes. If you were standing on Saturn, you wouldn't know that the Sun had gone out for about 80 minutes after it had. Now we see Saturn because light reflects off it from the Sun, same as any other planet. Depending on where the Earth is in our orbit, we can be between 9 to 11 astronomical units away from Saturn. So it takes at least 72 minutes for light to reach back to us from Saturn. So if you take the 80 minutes it takes the light from the Sun to get to Saturn, and add that to the 72 minutes it takes the light to get from Saturn back to us, it means that the light travel time is at least 152 minutes in total. But remember that we wouldn't know about the Sun going out for 8 minutes after it had, so we have to take that 8 minutes off. So if the Sun were to spontaneously go out, we would see Saturn disappear about 144 minutes afterwards. But to be honest, that's probably the least of your worries. But we're not a danger from the Sun something going out. Yeah, I mean, the, the Sun will eventually die, but it's not going to be a sudden thing. We'll have plenty of warning, and it's not due to happen for ooh, a good five, six billion years. So we're not suddenly going to watch the Sun just disappear from the sky? I wouldn't hold your breath. Our next question comes from Archimy, who says, As far as I understand, astronomers are relatively confident about the parameters of the habitable zone around a star. Are the same parameters and relationships applicable to moons? Can a habitable moon exist around a planet that is outside its star's habitable zone? Well, the answer to this is that we first have to define what a habitable zone is. Now, it's generally thought of as the region around the star where planets should have liquid water on their surfaces. So liquid water is very important to life, as we know it, and it's one of the prerequisites for a planet to be habitable. The habitable zone exists because stars heat up the planet. Too close to the star and water boils, and we end up with a planet like Venus, which has no oceans because all the water is in steam in its atmosphere. Too far away and water freezes, and you end up with an icy body like a comet or like Jupiter's moon Europa. Now, In the middle, there's a so-called Goldilocks zone, where conditions are just right to have liquid water on the surface. The precise definition of the habitable zone is complicated by many things. Not all planets in the habitable zone will be habitable. Gas giants don't have surfaces, so they won't be habitable. Planets can have eccentric orbits, which means that sometimes they're in the habitable zone, sometimes they aren't. And the host stars around which these planets orbit can sometimes be inconducive to life. They can flare, or they may not live long enough for life to arise on them. Now, liquid water can exist in other planets outside the habitable zone. There's things like the greenhouse effect, which can heat up cold planets. And heat generated by radioactive material inside the planets can also keep them warm. In fact, the Earth gets about 20 degrees, or roughly 10% of its heat, simply from the decay of radioactive materials in its core. One important part, as far as moons are concerned, is tidal heating. Now, this is due to the gravitational attraction of the giant planet which they orbit. If you have a look at Io, Europa, moons of Jupiter, these moons are heated up to really high temperatures just because of the pull of Jupiter's gravity on them, which melt their interiors. In fact, Io is the most volcanic body we know of in the solar system. On moons like Europa... This melting causes the icy mantle inside the moons to melt. In fact, Europa, we think, has a subsurface ocean, which may be habitable, and uh, who knows, life may have arisen in it already. Wow, so there could be life in our own solar system on some of these moons. Well, there might be, and um, there are various missions 
proposed by NASA and ESA and other space communities that um, are planning on looking for it. But uh, we're talking several years in the future here. Oh, wow. Wouldn't that be brilliant, though, if we could find something in our own solar system? It'd be brilliant. It may not happen, but uh, it will tell us something, even if we don't find it, about um, how common life is in the universe. Okay, our next question comes from Chris Giltonham, who emailed, Is there any way of telling from the radiation given off by accretion disk around a black hole if the black hole is swallowing ordinary matter or dark matter? That's a very good question, and we'll have to explain a few things here first. Now, accretion disks themselves form when material, it's usually gas, spirals into a black hole. As it spirals in, it orbits faster and faster, and all the atoms in the gas that's falling in have slightly different orbits, so they keep crashing into each other. These collisions cause friction inside the gas and heats it up. When you heat something up, it glows and gives off radiation, which we see as light. This is where we see the material, the accretion disk, as the matter falls in. Now, dark matter is a hypothetical kind of matter that behaves like normal matter that we're used to, but doesn't interact except via gravity. Now, it is currently theoretical only, but that explains a lot of what we know about the universe, from the speeds at which galaxies rotate to the variations we see in the cosmic microwave background, the imprint of the Big Bang. So we're pretty sure it's there. But because it doesn't interact with ordinary matter in the same way, it doesn't have these collisions between atoms that heat it up. So we can't see it. So as far as dark matter is concerned, it would simply fall into the black hole and we'd never know. Wow, that's brilliant! So dark matter and ordinary matter is falling into the black holes, but it's only ordinary matter that's giving off radiation, all the other dark matter not a signature at all, no way we can tell. Exactly. Our final questions come from Mark C and Lyndon Baldwin, and they ask very similar things, so I'm going to sort of couple them together. What is space expanding into? And if the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, what is the upper limit to the maximum velocity? Okay, hold on to your hats for this one, because it's going to get tricky. Now, we know space is expanding. We can see this when we look at distant galaxies. They're moving away from us. The further away they are, the faster they're receding. This isn't because we're cosmologically unpopular. It just means that everything is moving away from everything else. This is too slow to see in human timescales. In fact, your body would grow about a sixth of a millimetre in a billion years but it's the very fabric of space that's expanding. Now we call this the Hubble Law, and some of the best evidence we have for the Big Bang's existence. So the first question was, what's it expanding into? Well, the answer is nothing. This is where it gets slightly complicated, because the universe contains everything, even space and time. So there's nothing outside the universe for it to expand into, not even empty space. The universe doesn't even have an edge as we'd understand it. Some theories even suggest that if you were to head away from the Earth in a straight line, you'd eventually end up back at the Earth. Now, this is a little difficult to get your head around, and um, you probably need several years of astrophysics just to comprehend this kind of thing fully. In fact, most people who claim they comprehend it really don't. But if you want to know more about this, there's a really good book by Michio Keiko called Hyperspace. We'll put some links in the show notes about um, where you can get hold of that. The second question is, how fast can space expand? Now, the rate at which space is expanding is getting faster. We know this from distant supernovae, and we think it's caused by dark energy. There's a whole other show's worth about explaining what dark energy actually is. How fast it can expand? There really isn't a limit on that. The listener who asked the question suggests it might be limited by the speed of light. The expansion isn't really such a speed as a rate. Most of the universe is actually expanding away from us faster than the speed of light, which is why we can't see it. But those parts of the universe aren't actually travelling at that speed. It's just that the space in the middle is growing. And space can grow at any speed. 
fact, if we're right in our understanding, it'll eventually start to expand the rate that will pull galaxies apart, then individual stars, then planets, and eventually it will grow at such a rate that it'll even pull the individual atoms apart. Now this is known as Big Rip Theory and may or may not happen depending on who you believe, but we'll let you know in about 34 billion years. I'd like to thank Mark C, Lyndon Baldwin, Archimie, Chris Giltname and Philip Murphy for sending in those questions. And thank you, Ian, for answering them all brilliantly and hopefully I won't be pulled apart by anything in the future. You're welcome and hopefully neither will I. And to all the other listeners, don't forget you can send in your astronomical questions via the website. Thanks for that, Libby and Ian. Well, we're almost at the end, so it's time to round up your feedback. And first of all, we've had some actual posts, which is always the thing that we're most excited about. We had a postcard from Taiwan showing a night view of Taipei and the second tallest building in the world. It did come from three of our own astronomers here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Paul, Libby and Sean, and Libby and Paul arrived back before the postcard, but we were still very excited to receive it, and in fact so were they. What happened to Sean? Um, Sean couldn't come back. No, that Sean is actually lucky enough to be spending a year there doing research. So he was already there, and he'll be back in a few months' time. I've had an email from Luke McDonough. He says he simply can't get enough of our 1920s jazz theme music. Well, I agree. I think it's great. He was also pretty happy to spot a subtle reference to Jerry Springer in Dara O'Brien's outro from the last episode. Well spotted. And on the forums, we've had a message from Mark C, and he says, How do we know that that was Dara and not someone who can do an Irish accent with a handkerchief over their mouth? And we do promise it was real. It was really him. You have our word on that. There's photographic evidence and everything. Yeah, and we didn't fake that. Nope. And everyone got very excited about meeting all those famous people. Look out for more intros and outros. We've also been tweeted by several people who have been letting us know how they best like to listen to the Jodcast. First up, we had Lee C. Gardner, and he has been listening because he's been ill. Well, we wish you a speedy recovery, Lee, and please do continue listening even when you're better. We've also been tweeted by Jim Pryor, Lisa Tibbs and Sweetie, or Sweetie, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but um, thanks for getting in touch. On Facebook, we've had a message from Dave DeHetra. Sorry if that pronunciation isn't right. He suggests that we should go weekly with the Jodcast. No. Why not? Because there's only a small number of us. We would love to go weekly, actually, but time constraints make it difficult enough to do two per month. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. So it only remains to say a very big thank you to all of our interviewees. Professor Martin Rees, Adam Averson, and Lizzie Campbell and Ruth Wood, the work experience students who interviewed him, and also did a load of really useful stuff while they were here. If you are doing GCSEs or A-levels, and you want to do work experience at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, you can find out more about that on the Jodrell Bank website, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. The editors for this show were Jen Gupta, Adam Averson, Melanie Jondra, and Mark Perver. So until next time... Jodrell on! on.